You are now listening to the Here for the Truth podcast, hosted by Joel Rafidi and Eurosimos. Yo, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Here for the Truth. I'm Joel Rafidi. I got my co-host Eurosimos in the house as always. I still need a new intro because I say that every single time, but you know, <laughs> old habits die hard. And here we are, episode 119. And this could be one of the most pivotal, important conversations we've had on this podcast. We've had many, but this one um, it definitely shines bright for sure. We have Simon Esler, who is a filmmaker uh, and a director, and he's created this incredible film called Cut, um, Daughters of the West, really diving deep into these concepts of fifth-generational warfare, uh, gender ideology, gender dysphoria, um, uh, the, the rise in uh, transgenderism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we cover a lot of bases here in this conversation. Um, so we really hope you enjoy it. Just before we get into that, um, you know, the only thing I really want to highlight here is that all our episodes can be found at herefortheTruth.com. That's where all the visual component of our episodes are for those listening who want to, you know, dive, dive, dive a bit deeper. We have a comment section there as well. So you can comment and engage in a dialogue around these episodes and these discussions. And that's also where you can discover the link for our private membership community, Friends of the Truth. Um, where you know our members come together, these are like-minded, rational, grounded truth seekers, um, engaging in awesome conversations around how to best uplift themselves and their families. And we jump on three calls a month. We bring on podcast guests. We bring on you know teachers to do live teachings, live presentations, and we have a lot of fun and it's a good time. So you're going to get some knowledge and you know have a bit of reprieve. Then check out Friends of the Truth um, at friendsofthetruth.co or via hereforthetruth.com. Thank you so much for your support. Uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for engaging. Uh, we really, really, really appreciate it. And please enjoy this conversation. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Here for the Truth podcast. As always, another amazing guest. We have Simon Esler in the house. Simon Esler fights for free thought with every tool he has. After building a free thinking 14,000 member think tank on Facebook, Simon was censored across social media for challenging official narratives. In response, he pivoted his focus to providing content to freedom-oriented streaming platforms, refining his skills as a researcher, content creator, and filmmaker within private communities. After almost half a decade of writing, shooting, and editing, original content focused on modern warfare from a psychological, cultural, and spiritual perspective, Simon decided to release his first independent project for the public at large, Cut, Daughters of the West. Now combining all his skills and passions, Simon is on a mission to win the ongoing war against free thought and human liberty. His extensive portfolio of content, ranging from in-depth documentaries to science fiction comedies, can all be found at his website, simonesler.com. Simon, thank you for being here for the truth. Very, very glad to be here. Thank you for having me. It's our absolute pleasure, man. Um, you're doing very interesting um, and important work. There's no doubt about that. One way we always like to kick off these podcasts is we'd like to um, uncover a little bit about your own personal hero's journey and some of the major rites of passage that really, I guess, primed you to to do this work. So could you give us like a brief background of like those main catalyzing moments that really transformed who you are, I guess? Yeah, actually, you know, my journey, although this is no longer where I'm really studying and researching, uh, I was pulled into ufology and, and that whole space initially, because I had a lot of uh, early experiences when I was young, 
seeing different things in the sky and having very intense, vivid dreams. Um, you know, there was one one moment in particular that has always stood out for me. When I was about 11 years old, I was laying in the snow uh, up in Muskoka, which is north of, of Toronto, where I am. And I was watching the sky. I was just stargazing by myself. And a, and a giant purple spiral opened up in the sky and just rotated in the sky for like maybe 30 minutes. Wow. Um, so at the time, like this was, it was very opening. Like it, it opened me up a lot and I didn't have any theories or assumptions about it. It was just something beautiful that I took in and I kind of left. But over the years, I did have more experiences. I, I saw more craft in the sky. I saw, you know, what looked like shooting stars that were making 90 degree turns in the sky and huge flashes and things like this. So that, that intrigued me. It, it drew my interest towards that field. Uh, and so in time I ended up, um, researching and working within the ufology community. And uh, I I ended up being an experiencer in a couple of different ways. And there was one particular moment that was probably the most, I think, impactful for me in that space uh, was actually, uh, I was doing a, a guided meditation session for a client. At the time, I was running a business uh, doing meditation uh, teachings, like in-depth meditation for, for very stressed sort of high high-level clients running big companies and things like this. And I was actually in the bedroom of this client doing a really deep guided meditation practice. And one of the techniques I was using at the time, it had to do with uh, gazing very softly into my own body um, and availing myself to a, to a kind of openness, to a kind of emptiness. And in the middle of this session with this client, uh, what looked like an, an extraterrestrial appeared in the room in front of me with my eyes open. And it was just a very soft, gentle moment, almost like um, we'd sort of accidentally stumbled across each other. And it was just a very beautiful, natural moment. And then, and then it was over. There wasn't like a, it wasn't like someone was reaching out to contact me. It was more like streams of consciousness had sort of crossed each other. Um, and that really stuck with me. That that the, the feeling of that moment in my body really imprinted itself upon me. So I, I spent years deeply researching ufology in that space. And uh, I ended up presenting at a few different conferences, uh, ufology conferences over the years. And uh, eventually, I ended up pivoting away from that. And it's funny you should mention rites of passage because mm. um, that specific, specific topic became a passion of mine. Uh, I ended up becoming ordained as what's called a metaphysical minister um, here in Ontario. There's a place called the Bancroft Center for Awakening Spiritual Growth. And they are recognized legally as, as a church here. And, you know, it's quite strict being able to become um, a legal minister here in Ontario. And so that was the path that I went. And part of my training um, to get to that point was studying as a life cycle celebrant. Uh, so I became certified as a life cycle celebrant. And this had to do with studying the history of rites of passage, ceremony, of ritual, and being able to create custom ceremonies for people um, based on their own personal journey. And so I spent years doing that, doing um, wedding ceremonies that were created just for the couple that I was working with, and I would build rituals out of their story and their history. Um, so I spent, I spent some years doing that uh, while I was acting also as a personal support worker for people on the autistic spectrum. I ended up using a lot of my mindfulness and ritual-based training to help autistic people in the community. And uh, while I was doing that, uh, I was also working as an actor doing uh, comedy theater. 
in Toronto. Uh, I'm still doing that, actually. Hmm. Um, and so it's just for me, it's been about having this really wide range of different careers and experiences. And what's happened now is I've sort of taken all of that and brought it into my my professional content creation career. And so that's why I have, uh, you know, if you go to my site, I have so many different kinds of things going on. It's because for me, I have to bring all those different aspects of myself to my work. It was something that I realized during the lockdowns that uh, when they first enacted the lockdowns here in Toronto, it destroyed the theater community, the, the industry itself. And uh, I lost my access to doing comedy theater and character-based comedy. And so I made this 60-minute comedy special for Rise TV literally out of, of a, an act of survival to 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 bring that part of myself back out and to try to process what was going on through comedy. And after all the lockdowns uh, sort of hit the economy here, all my other work disappeared. So I wasn't able to do the, the theater for, for years. I wasn't able to do the personal support work anymore. And I had to actually focus my entire career into content creation. And so that's why I spent years working for these platforms and selling content. And now with uh, my new film, Cut, this is the first thing that I am releasing publicly, independently, uh, and putting that into the world uh, after having been behind these these streaming platforms for, for some years. So I guess that's like a, a compacted version of my journey. <laughs> yeah, man, that's that that's incredible. And so much diversity in the journey, you know, and then all of it culminates into bringing the boon back home into, I guess, what is your your primary passion now, which is amazing. Could you, before we like get deep into it, could you provide our audience with a brief history of Cut, what's, what's, what, what it's about, and just give them an overview so we can dive into the, the main matter sure. of it? So the way I ended up making Cut was because uh, the project I'd been working on that before was this six-part docu-series on the war on the family. And it was exploring the occulted war on the family in comparison to the family as a superorganism. I, I really wanted to, to explore this idea of the traditional family unit as a superorganism that was designed to gather human wisdom and knowledge to maintain its integrity and to cast it as far into the future generations as possible. Because I felt like, from what I had learned from the war on the family, we need we need a response to it that is about uplifting our ideal of what the family is, because that seems to be what's under attack. And in my study of the war on the family, I ended up looking at it uh, broken down into operations, the operations that were focused on attacking the mother, the operations attacking the father, and the operations attacking the children. And when I was really researching what was impacting children, I ended up uh, coming up against gender ideology, that, that the harms of gender ideology seemed to be very, very clear to me. And that looked very much like a warfare operation to me. So I ended up researching that very deeply, but I ended up with a lot more research than I could fit into that docuseries and really ended up realizing that this ideology is impacting girls way, way more than it is impacting boys. Um, and we have this explosion of girls identifying as transgender. Uh, but when I looked at the rhetoric around that issue, and uh, not just the rhetoric in terms of how it's being pushed onto society, but even some of the rhetoric, the rhetoric in the pushback, I noticed that it was uh, it was narrowly political, that it had been reduced into this sort of left versus right struggle. When, from what I could see, it was way beyond politics. And so I wanted to research a broader perspective of it. And so with Cut, what I ended up doing was going into the history of plastic surgery and cosmetic surgery. And I found some 
some key points in human history where we used cosmetic surgery to really change the moral fabric of our society quite drastically. And what I ended up discovering was that right before this explosion of girls identifying as transgender, there was this massive increase in girls getting labiaplasties, which is cosmetic genital surgery. And it seemed very relevant to me that there were, there were cultural norms that ended up producing all these girls seeking body modification based on this idea that they need to overcome their physical bodies to be who they are, and that that wasn't inserted with an overtly political ideology like gender ideology. That was something that came from these cultural norms that we had built up over generations and accepted since the inception of cosmetic surgery. So cut begins in that place. It shows people some of those larger cultural norms, and then it gets into the explosion in gender ideology in girls and how that may have come from those cultural norms. Why, why do you think this explosion in plastic surgery and cosmetic surgery uh, in teens uh, happened? There's a couple different moving parts to that. While on the one hand, there is a media influence, so you have celebrities who are overtly showing off that they get plastic surgery. A lot of them will talk about this, they'll, or they'll just show up looking completely different. Um, so there, it's to an extent celebrated and normalized within celebrity culture. We saw that very early on with Pamela Anderson being very frank about getting breast augmentation. And after her, there was this crazy increase in in women, uh, young women seeking breast augmentation. So there's that. There is the the introduction of pornography. So with labiaplasty, you just have a lot of girls being exposed to labia, to other women's genitalia, and presented in media in a certain way. A lot of ideas about what they should look like are given to them in pornography and in popular media. But the other element to this is that there is actual medical disinformation. You actually have plastic surgery journals lying to girls and women, saying things like uh, 50 to 60% of women and girls have what's called labia menorah hypertrophy, so they're saying that the, the labiaplasty is a good thing to get anyways because most women are deformed and have overly sized labia. Um, so they're actually overtly lying to the girls. So even if a girl is coerced by media, when she turns to the, the medical industry, they are disinforming her as well. And uh, it seems to be that, you know, th that to me is a much more powerful form of deception than just the media. And I think that's one of the main reasons that a lot more girls and women are getting it. Yeah, I think that's what the challenge is, is you have people who don't really know much about some of these subjects. They get influenced by media and then they go to the so-called experts that are ideologically captured as well. And then they go along with it. And then before you know it, 10, 15 years down the road, and you know, we have this epidemic of things that are that are occurring in that nature. Yeah. And 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 not to mention, you know, the psychological degradation of you know I I individuals by the time they get to this point through generational programming conditioning is to have like they're, they're at a point where they have low self-esteem they have you know elements of body hatred elements of self-loathing because everything is telling them that they're not good enough right that they need to be better that they need to be this ideal um which is given to them from it from the external so yeah there's a lot of factors that go into this which i think really culminated in this you know exploding in the way that it did yeah, the the social media element, I think, is a particularly potent accelerator of all this. Mm. Um, as I explore in my film, you know, the impact of social media on girls is very particular, very unique to girls. It's not at all the way it affects boys. And, uh, you know, girls, they rely on their social cluster in different ways than boys do to develop their identities. 
uh, girls are much more likely to turn their stress against themselves, uh, which is, I think, you know, one of the reasons that we seem to be seeing this decline in mental health in girls is directly because of social media. So, you know, one of the things that we can see quite clearly um, is that the first generation of girls that were exposed to smartphones and social media in middle school went into a mental health crisis. So we had this drastic rise in girls being hospitalized because they had cut themselves so badly. Um, and so we're looking at social media creating this mental health crisis when girls were already getting plastic surgery in rising numbers. And then you introduce gender ideology and you really have like an incredible amount of pressure being put on girls when it is already difficult for girls to develop themselves into women in our society. That has always been difficult. I would say that as a culture, we have always struggled with the arrival of female fertility. It's, it's always been an issue for our culture. And so, you know, with social media, like a, a girl's development of self, when she's seeing women on social media who are always, they're always at filters, right? They're always looking very, very dolled up. Yeah. <clears throat> the girl, even though she might know about the filters, it doesn't matter. She still ends up potentially wanting to imitate that fake version of that person, just like we saw with airbrushed women in magazines. So you can imagine what it was like for all the girls growing up who just had the magazines and the airbrushed women. This is that times a thousand because it's in their face all day. It's, um, it's engaged in social engineering that utilizes dopamine hits, that is training their brain to try to seek attention, to be accepted. And so when you put that in place, and then you put gender ideology into it, where if a girl transitions, she's going to get all this attention on social media. That's a very, very difficult series of factors to be up against. Simon, what is gender ideology? Yeah. Well, this is the belief, essentially, that gender is only a social construct and that it is not really related to biology. Uh, this is where things have ended up. This is why there is a, a struggle for example, to define woman. It's now it's this big hot topic from Matt Walsh's film that they can't define a woman. And you know, a lot of the pushback is saying that's just an offensive question. But the reason it's poignant is because gender ideology relies on this, this idea that everything in our society in terms of men and women is just socially constructed. And so we have the freedom to construct it differently. And gender ideology posits this, this notion that um, you can essentially be born in the wrong body, uh, that, that you might be a, a boy trapped in a girl's body or a girl trapped in a boy's body. This is a radical left-wing theory uh, that, frankly, is not very well supported by science. And it's become very muddled lately because gender ideology has expanded from just dealing with things like gender dysphoria, which is a clinically acknowledged mental illness, into saying that... Um, you can just be gender incongruent and WPATH, which is really the organization that is pushing the gender ideology-based medical model onto the world. They, in 2010, put out a statement saying that we need to stop the psychopathologization of gender incongruence, basically saying that you need to tone down how much you are uh, diagnosing people with gender ideology and just say they're gender incongruent and let them get the double mastectomy, let them get the hysterectomy or the testosterone injections, and don't even make it about getting the mental health diagnosis of gender dysphoria specifically. What, what, um, what, were, the, what were the seeds and the roots of this ideology like coming into you know, prominence? Like it, it seems to me like it's 
I don't know. It's hard to it's hard to define. It's hard to grasp. Like who who like who believes this and why? You know. Well, it comes from the whole social justice model. Uh, yeah. So you know, a lot of it is just it has its roots in that. That's why it has crossover with the idea that we are surrounded with white supremacy, um, with the idea that you know we have to uplift all the most oppressed groups and deconstruct our entire society and rebuild it from the ground up. There's there's just frankly there's a lot of um, communist themes that that come through in gender ideology and and it overlaps perfectly with the communism that comes through things like critical race theory. All of these are coming from a social justice model of society. Um, you know, I even recently saw a researcher here in Canada. She's proposing that childhood innocence is a social construct. And that we need to get rid of this idea of childhood innocence, that it's just a weapon being wielded by the right, and that um, it uplifts white supremacy to say that childhood innocence exists. This, yeah. this series of theories, um, it's very, very, uh, I guess it's so left brain. It's such an overly left hemisphere way of looking at the world because everything becomes compartmentalized and analytical. You end up in these labyrinths. And none of it has to do with embodiment, with being embodied in the world, with using a, a right brain perspective that looks at things in a holistic way, that put things into a context in a more holistic way, because that's really what our right hemisphere does. Whereas the left hemisphere, it's all about looking at things as deconstructed, things in parts. That's actually, interestingly enough, the left hemisphere, its job in terms of assessing our body is looking at our body in terms of parts. So when we think of our body as parts of like hand, heart, ears, eyes, that is your left hemisphere observing and experiencing your body. Whereas the right hemisphere is experiencing the body as holistic and as this embodied sense of self, this holistic thing that you live in and that is you, you're doing that with your right hemisphere. So I'd say that these theories, these social justice theories, they're aggressively left-brained and so it becomes very imbalanced. And you can see why uh, in training children's minds to this, why they would end up believing, oh, well, if I just switch this body part for another body part, I can have a new identity. And it's literally encouraging them to only use half of their brain in a way, in the way that they see their body and experience themselves. Yeah. It, it seems as though it's a, a destruction of objectivity uh, as well. And it's as though they're trying to grant themselves permission to 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 render these individuals including the destruction of children innocence um they're trying to give themselves permission to um what what am i trying to say here it's like almost as if any any element of protection or security or safety of of the child is now a far right wing kind of kind of element and they want them, they want to give themselves permission to kind of distort the way the child thinks the way the child evolves the way the child grows um, and anyone that resists that, so to speak, is kind of now on, you know, in, in, a, in a kind of like a far right container. They have really done that pretty effectively, quite frankly. You know, this this war on innocence is like a major, major factor in all of this. Yep. And so, you know, when I look at the war on innocence, I look at it very broadly because that is, in a great sense, the war on children. But it's also the war on innocence in terms of adults being in touch with their innocence, being in touch with their inner child. Most adults are traumatized to disassociate with their innocence so that that's how they function as adults. And so what that creates is a lot of adults who are so um, normalized in their trauma that they actually can't even see the trauma that's being enacted on children. They are blind to the innocence of children because they're blind to it in themselves. And I think that 
has to that has to do with a lot of the parents who are participating in this, who are willfully having their children's bodies permanently modified when the child cannot possibly consent to that um, permanent change. I think you're dealing with a lot of traumatized adults. And I think from what I found when I was doing research on the war on the family, this war on innocence, in my opinion, it, it has to do with our ability to take the knowledge from our past, like knowledge and traditions that have been gathered from the, the humanity's past, and to blend it with the present and to turn it into new knowledge that is modified for the present and takes what we need from the past and then cast that into the future generations. I don't believe we can do that without innocence because to, to my understanding, innocence is the space in which we do that. Innocence is the space where we can bring things in and look at them with newness and awe and wonder. And so we can see what from the past is relevant and working and what needs to be thrown out. And so that, to me, it has a very uh, practical purpose within the human being. And when we cannot transform old knowledge and, and make it new and relevant and then send it into the future generations, we can't survive as a species and we end up being very at the whims of social engineering, of what is coming from the govern government and the media, because we don't have those lines of knowledge grounding us as a humanity. So we end up needing to be directed by government and media. And so to me, this is a big part of it. This is a tactical kind of warfare to disrupt our ability to properly orient ourselves as a species. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And sorry. No, you go, man. Not to mention like innocence and vulnerability is the breeding ground of connection and intimacy, you know? So you, you destroy innocence and what you have is a society that's very, they think they're building connection. They're not. They're building defensiveness. They're building skepticism. They're, they're, they're blurring the lines. They think that, oh yeah, it's collective. We're all coming together. You know, we're all, we, got, we can all do and be whatever we want to be. But no, you're, you're destroying the human ability to connect and to be intimate and actually to actually be together and to be a real, true, healthy, flourishing community. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I um you mentioned the term warfare and I've heard you talk about fifth generation warfare. Can you speak on that a little bit? Yeah, so this is a modern kind of warfare. Um it's spoken about quite extensively in a number of circles. Uh General Flynn, General Michael Flynn and and Boone Cutler, they put out a book recently called The Citizen's Guide to Fifth Generation Warfare. That's probably one of the best resources I've found, but um from my knowledge Fifth generation warfare is a modern kind of warfare that is designed so that the people being attacked, they don't know they're being attacked and they don't know that they're in a war. It is essentially designed to blend into the, the sociocultural landscape in which we live. And it functions using chaos and ambiguity. And so when you have a lot of chaos and ambiguity, uh, that, that is the modern sort of fog of war. And we see this a lot. Like when you get into the weeds of gender ideology and the studies and the science, it gets very, very murky. It's hard to assess what is going on. Um, that's on purpose. Um, it's meant to be ambiguous and chaotic uh, because that is actually a tactic in this modern form of warfare. And so uh, when we're talking about fifth generation warfare, uh, we are talking about... Um, this kind of warfare that is often psychological, there's a lot of psychological operations involved in it, um, but the way that it's really unique is that it's psychological operations that are designed to look like your everyday life. And, you know, people need situational awareness. We need to become aware of the war that we're in. And I think that's why it's important to comprehend this modern kind of warfare and to be able to recognize the signs of it. Um, and so I would say that... Uh, Gender ideology is a really good example of that. 
when you look at a psychological operation, it is designed to modify the perceptions and the, the cognition of, of target audiences. And it's meant to modify them to the extent that they then change their behavior based on the new outlook they've been given. And if we look at what has happened with young girls here, it's a great example. They have been conditioned through gender ideology being inserted into the schools, into social media, into celebrity culture. It has modified their worldview. And suddenly they are performing these new behaviors. They're demanding that they be called different names. They get new pronouns. They want surgery. They want uh, testosterone. Uh, these are the the signs of a psychological operation. And so to me, the warfare perspective is helpful because it helps you cut through the, all those political narratives and just recognize what's really going on. Because in my experience, uh, fifth generation warfare, it doesn't really matter if it's coming from the left or the right, whichever wing is useful to the operation will be used. Yeah. Yeah. Particularly, I think when like, it's been such a slow burn where this transition hasn't happened overnight. It's happened over the course of generations. So it becomes very, very difficult to discern and to determine. And again, we mentioned this particular interview a lot, but it just it's reminiscent of the great interview between G. Edward Griffin and Yuri Bezmanov. I don't know if you've seen it where he discusses, you know, ideological subversion. And we're just seeing it before our very, very, very eyes, but most people are simply blind to it. Yeah. And part yeah. of the, you know, communist playbook too is, goes along with what you were saying is like, let's confuse the the population and create chaos. It just seems yeah. like that's par for the course. Yeah, the 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 Yuri Bezmenov interview is really, really, uh, it's super relevant to what's going on right now, especially because he speaks overtly about using at least three generations to create this third generation that is so ideologically subverted. subverted. He says they, they can't even be told that black is black and white is white. Um, and, and we see that a lot with a lot of the, the more extreme trans activists, uh, especially the, the medical activists who want to transition children. Um, there isn't any ability to reason with them. And, you know, when we look at the older notion of someone being a, um, a victim of war, someone who's a fallen soldier, or someone who's been captured in war, this, this is the modern version of that, right? These are people who have been captured by a form of warfare they are casualties of war in, in a sense. Their minds are casualties of war that um, they could not possibly defend themselves against because they're a product of two generations, at least before them. And I think, number one, that's important because we need to have a certain amount of compassion. In the left and right-wing rhetoric, there's a lot of, uh, there's just a lot of uh, dehumanization. You have a lot of the time on the right, it's like, you know, people are libtards or left wing or leftism is a mental illness or these people are demonic. You know, I see a lot of that rhetoric online and um, that misses what's really going on here because these people are victims of warfare. But I think, you know, something really interesting, specifically in gender ideology, that it kind of flips what Yuri Bezmenov is talking about, because he's right that there, there, there is this subversion going on. And you have these people that can't see black as black and white as white, but you have an exception to that rule in gender ideology. Um, because you have detransitioners. So these detransitioners de that are speaking out, um, they're exceptional in the sense that they were as ideologically captured as Yuri Bezmenov pointed out to the extent that they maimed themselves, they sterilized themselves, they they got their breasts cut off, um, you know, they they ruined their voices. They went, they were so ideologically captured that they did that to themselves. But the trauma of that, it did wake them up actually, and they were able to exit this kind of communist mind control. And it's why I think detransitioners are so powerful 
and uplifting their voices and their message are powerful because we have examples of people emerging from this warfare who are able to speak directly to the experience of waking up from it. And if there's any hope to, to get people to wake up from this, it's the people who have actually done that themselves within one lifetime, even though this is multi-generational warfare. Yeah, that's what I loved about your film is that you highlighted, you know, the stories and the vulnerability and the realness of detransitioners. Because I could only imagine people who are considering transitioning. And when they go to the first page of Google, you know, they're not seeing, you know, interviews and articles about these people that have taken that road. Plus, you highlight something else that's super important and how it works in a similar manner. Pain is such a great motivation for change. And so you have the pain maybe it's influenced by media, social contagion, et cetera, whatever, that influences an individual to make this drastic change. But then you have another deeper pain that influences them to, you know, want to change back. I found that, I find that interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting. And I think it's why the detransitioners are attacked so vehemently. It's why they're censored. You know, when I was first studying the stories of detransitioners, I found you know, some of their their tweets, for example, Twitter, this is before Elon Musk took over. Um, some of them were just them sharing the gruesome details of how their body now works and the, the, the physical struggles they're having with their health. And th their tweets were just getting disappeared, not even like tagged as a warning or anything. They were just gone from Twitter. And I found that really, really startling that just detransitioners just trying to tell their story wasn't being allowed. Um, and, and I think that's it. It's, a, it's another sign that we're dealing with warfare because they are so impactful against this operation that uh, that all resources possible are being used to try to stomp out their voices. Yeah. Can you can you also talk about this one element that you highlighted in your film? It's something I've personally come across when I've, let's say, shared or posted something about this. Is this argument, and it seems like it's the rallying cry that everyone uses where it's like, would you rather have a, a dead daughter or a healthy, you know, a trans? Living son. Son. Yeah, living son. Yeah. So this is a, a manipulation that has been pumped into the population, into the trans community specifically. This idea that um, suicide is very high in trans youth and that if they don't get, get access to these medical services, they will kill themselves. Um, this is fundamentally untrue on a number of levels. Firstly, a lot of the data that they use to cite this, um, we're looking at things like surveys where they actually just surveyed some youths and asked them if they ever thought about suicide. Uh, and that's it. That's as far as it goes. So within medical literature, there is a huge difference between suicidal ideation and actual suicide attempts. These are looked at very distinctly. And it is not, um, it's not looked at within the medical community, or, or sorry, um, suicidal ideation is not looked at within the medical community as something that will automatically lead to actual suicide attempts. In fact, statistically, it's quite low to go from ideation to attempts. And so there's that. The other thing is that the context in a lot of this research, they're not being asked whether the suicidal ideation has anything to do with being trans or if it really just has to do with the struggles of being an adolescent. Sometimes there could be child abuse in the home. There could be a huge range of factors. So we're looking at very bad data that's being skewed very deeply. And then the other aspect of this is that um, there's actually better data that shows that suicide attempts actually go up after transition. And then you have a lot more of these people who want to kill themselves after they have been medically altered, um, either because of regret 
or because it really didn't actually fix the gender dysphoria or whatever mental health condition they really had because there's a lot of misdiagnosis going on. So that's really a big part of the manipulation. And it's a kind of uh, emotional blackmail that's being put upon parents. Um, I think there's a lot of doctors just regurgitating this line uh, without actually doing the research themselves. They're not coming from any data. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, I think that's one of the biggest manipulations. And and again, I would say it's a it's a good reason to recognize that this isn't a totally political thing. So instead of thinking that parents are just so hyper left-wing, they're transitioning their children, sometimes it's not that. Sometimes they're literally just loving parents who were manipulated by doctors and in their love for their children, they believed what that doctor said. And so they went along with this affirmative care model to try to save their child's life. The story of the allopathic model, you know, trusting the expert. That seems to be crumbling in a big way all over mm -hmm. our whole society, you know? Yeah. Hope you're enjoying this episode. Just a quick interlude to shout out some members of our community, Friends of the Truth, who support us and help us to do what we do. Uh, so shout out to Jess, Annie, Isaac, Katie, Julianne. Guys, thank you so much for the support. We love what we're building over there. Uh, it's a lot of fun. And for anyone listening that wants to dive a bit deeper and check out our community, uh, go to friendsofthetruth.co and you can learn more and join there. Back to the episode. Like, I one, one, one flashback that came to me throughout this conversation is, you know, when I was a young boy, my mom would just always buy like, you know, in Australia, we call them Women's Day or New Idea, but, you know, the general women's tabloid magazines that come around always highlighting celebrity culture, the royals, et cetera, et cetera. And I feel like that was a pivotal moment that's coming to me now where Angelina Jolie got a double mastectomy or something. Is that right? Yes. Yes, yeah. she did. She did. Yes. I think that was, was, was that based on avoiding breast cancer or something? Yeah. Supposedly yeah. she had this certain gene that could lead to breast cancer down in the, in, in the future. And so you're better off removing your breasts now. Which you know they're doing that for a lot of different uh, conditions as well. That if they if they see the potential that something could happen, you're better off like taking out your uterus now or removing your breasts. You know, I saw something recently, and I you know I'd have to just paraphrase this as something I came across. But from what I understand, a lot of those studies that they were using to say that the double mastectomies were cancer preventative uh, just turned out to be wrong. That there's a, a a lot of that data is bad too, and you have women now speaking out saying, "You gave me a double mastectomy, and it ended up being for no reason. It didn't protect me, and this wasn't true." Oh, that sounds and, familiar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I know, right? Well, a lot of this comes down to I think there's there is overt warfare on women's biology, very, very specifically. This is one thing where I would say that. This is a, a one of the things that is fundamentally correct about feminism. I think a lot of feminism has turned into a psychological operation that has benefited this communist push, but there are elements of feminism that are entirely correct. There has been what seems to be a war on women's biology, and it goes into so many areas. You know, if we just look at birthing culture and the medicalization of birth, you know, women get millions of years of knowledge and evolution in their bodies when they go to give birth, and they are rushed to the hospital and they are made to lie down against their actual physiological need to squat, they are intervened at higher and higher numbers. We have numbers of uh, C-sections going up. Uh, we had about a 50-year period in the United States where breastfeeding almost disappeared because of all this propaganda about how formula was so superior and it was such an advantage for women to get into the workforce. 
which again is denying women's biology. It's denying all the incredible things that happen when a woman breastfeeds her child. You know, that doesn't just get into nourishment. That's how children learn self-regulation. It's it's a big part of their emotional landscape. Uh, it's how they learn certain forms of sort of coherent states like heart heart coherence and things like this. It has to do with being nuzzled against the mother and breastfeeding. So when you look at that, you know, you look at birthing culture and breastfeeding and um, all the the cosmetic surgery, right? Because 92% of the cosmetic surgery industry is all only on women. You'll have 8% of it is being done to men. There's this desire that is built into our society to just modify and damage women's bodies. So the mastectomy thing in terms of cancer, to me, it's just, it's par for the course. It's what's been going on. And now we see all of this culminating with gender ideology where biological men are taking over women's spaces. They're taking women's titles. Um, this idea that you, you, you aren't a woman if you uh, were born a woman, that doesn't make you a woman. That to me is just the culmination, again, of generations of social engineering that has been focused on degrading our notion of the female form itself. Yeah, it's well interesting. Said, man. Yeah, yeah it's really well said. Um, it's interesting that like feminists aren't coming out like raging against this, that, you know, males are taking over the feminine space. And yet if they do, they're canceled. Yeah, they're called TERFs, right? They're attacked as TERFs now if they if they stand against this. It's actually one of the interesting things that's happened for me is that, you know, I'm interested, one of the reasons I wanted to make this film was because I felt like giving that foundation of knowledge in terms of cosmetic surgery and these forms of social engineering that were present before the gender craze, it was something that's available to both left and right-wing people. And I really wanted to make something that that could be sent to a left-wing person where, you know, this first half of the film, it really just looks uh, at all of this without really getting deep into the trans thing so that they can see this foundation to it and there's a discussion to be had so that it's not just about, hey, you put your left-wing ideology and used it to target children. There's more to it. So I wanted to create that dialogue and, and I've wanted to do that with a lot of my work. And I have actually had feminists speak out and reach out to me saying, thank you for doing what you're doing. I support the work that you're doing. It's very important. We're very much against this. Um, you know, I ended up connecting with a woman named Jessica Pinn and she does some really great research and advocacy. She is someone who was actually uh, damaged by labiaplasty as a teenager. Um, and a big part of it for her was the medical disinformation. They completely just, they misinformed her about her body entirely and the risks and she ended up finding out that there isn't even proper anatomy of the clitoris and the vulva in medical textbooks. So this woman has spent like almost two decades now just trying to get the anatomy of the clitoris into medical textbooks, which is just mind-boggling to me that it's not, uh, because for her, there was damage. She got so damaged that her sexual function was permanently damaged. So she's been fighting against this all this labiaplasty propaganda and someone ended up uh, sharing my documentary uh, with her on Twitter, and I ended up connecting to her work and her whole fight against this. Now, this is someone who has been entirely embraced by the left, embraced by feminism. She's been on The Daily Show. You know, I think she's been published by The New York Times. She has a lot of large left-wing media entities that have embraced her work and put it forward. And so it's very interesting to me because it represents kind of like what I'm looking to do is this this cross-pollination of left and right wing and to, to let people understand that this is a battle that supersedes politics. And so, you know, it's been cool seeing her work and she recently actually got attacked by the trans community 
for just pointing out female anatomy. Essentially, someone did an art piece and it was all these vulvas and she knew which ones were and were not actual female vulvas because this is what she has studied her whole life. And then she got attacked because basically the ones she was able to identify that weren't proper anatomy were actually trans people who had had the surgery. And so she got attacked for allegedly attacking trans people. And she's been in a whole struggle with that. Um, But very interesting to see, very interesting to see that this is uh, something that is really happening. The left and the right are, as far as I can tell, coming together because that's been happening to me. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I agree, man. And and I think what you're, what you're doing uh, is super important because you have to find a way to, to, to bridge. Like there, there can't just be this um, polarization and this divide and conquering that's going on. And, you know, I have friends that I guess would identify a little bit more as liberals and yet, you know, they definitely aren't cool with what's going on in this regards, you know, with, with gender ideology and, and children transitioning, et cetera. And it seems like you have a small percentage of the population that is controlling this narrative. And those people that, um, let's say maybe share views on this, they're, they're not, they're not, they're not speaking out, you know, maybe they'll, they'll email you or they'll message you. Thanks for your work. I love that you're doing it. But then what, why aren't you talking out about it? You know? Yeah. And so we need more voices that are willing to risk being canceled beyond the left, right thing. Sure. Maybe you identify as a left, but if you, you sense that something is wrong and I think this like middle group, this whatever, per- excuse me on that. You're good. Oh, my, uh, my, my phone was ringing. Um, they just, they just don't speak out. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's this pressure not to say anything to avoid being canceled. And I think it's been interesting watching that happen in general, even just throughout the whole the whole COVID struggle. Um, what it really took for some people to finally speak out, how bad it has to get to an extent. Uh, I guess this is sort of part of the human awakening. There needs to be kind of like really, really extreme, extreme warfare to wake the human population up, because I can't imagine humanity waking up in the way that humanity is now waking up. I can't imagine it happening without this wild attack on us. It seems to be the catalyst we needed. So I guess for some people, it does need to go very, very far before they're willing to do that. Um, and you know, my, my goal is to really to, to try to try to create more dialogue, try to create more spaces where where both sides can discuss. And I think. You know, this is one of the things that's talked about in terms of fifth generation warfare. There is this uh, this capacity when the, when the media and the political spectrum is compromised to make a minority seem like a majority and then to gaslight the majority into believing that they are the minority. And this has been a very effective tactic. I think we've seen this in a lot of ways beyond gender ideology. And so I think it's really good for people to recognize that we are the majority. I think the majority of people are against this, uh, but you have a media machine and a compromised political spectrum that makes it seem otherwise. You have compromised medical and academic in- institutions that make it seem otherwise. You have this sort of academic elite that, um, you know, they push some of these narratives on us. And, you know, when you look at, <clears throat> you know, journals uh, like like Scientific American, they have an article on it's supposed to be like the be-all, end-all of, uh, of uh, the, the affirmative model, how medically sound the affirmative model is. It's very interesting. I, I looked at this and I looked at all the sources they have in it. It looks very professional on the surface because there's, cita- there's a lot of citations. There's like 40 citations in the article. But then when you go and look at it, all the citations are specifically American institutions, which is extremely relevant when we look at this on the world stage 
because you have pushback against the gender affirmative model coming from the UK, coming from Norway, coming from Sweden, coming from Finland. All those nations are diverting from the core the core of the affirmative model, which is this idea that we need to de-psychopathologize gender incongruence and just give them the medical care without even diagnosing them mentally. They don't need gender dysphoria. Just give it to them. These nations are pushing back against that. And so it becomes a very good example of information warfare when you go and look at Scientific American and how they're keeping people in this information bubble, even though you could cite a wide range of institutions around the world that say otherwise. One of my questions, which you kind of you know brought to the surface a little bit, was like, how big of an issue actually is this? Because one thing that I'm observing also is that it's like the conservatives seem to be giving this more publicity than anyone else. Like I scroll, I scroll through a Twitter feed, like all I'm reading now every single day is like transgender, drag, dancing at school, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, to what extent uh, you know, I guess conservatives just maintaining and propelling this, this this narrative to a point beyond what the actual problem is as well. And to what degree have they just identified with the war against this, where it just it's consumed their entire psyche and it's actually, you know, giving fuel to, to, to this dysfunction to some degree. I think that the use of politics within a theater of fifth generation warfare is probably not what most people believe it is. Um, from what I've seen, a lot of the right-wing media their take is if you just become more conservative, then you'll help save these children and that it is conservatism itself that will save them. So mm. the more we get people to become conservatives, the more children will save. And um, I'd say that's misleading because uh, they often use the, the fake notion that all left-wing people support this, uh, which as we know, you know, it's just not true. There's lots of left-wing people speaking out against this. They're, they're suppressed in their own way, but it's, you can find it if you look for it. <clears throat> so, they're misleading people in that in the same way that the left-wing media is, is saying all people who are against this are conservatives. And so you have this, the, the, both sides of the media lying and saying that just come over to our wing of politics and, and then everything will be better. So there is, a, uh, I think, a model being used within conservative politics that is just, just political rhetoric to get more people on their side. That being said, <clears throat> when we look at um, what's called the Overton window, right? This idea that there is a a sphere of ideas and concepts that are allowed to be discussed within the public square and ideas and concepts that can be discussed to the point that they lead to policy, this is when you start to get into the area where, where politics can be relevant, where keeping gender ideology as an issue within the Overton window does allow action to be taken in terms of policies that can protect children. And so we have seen some of this. Uh, you know, we've seen some laws passed in the U.S. that are making it illegal to medically transition children based on the idea that children simply cannot consent to it, which I do believe to, to be correct. Then you have people like, you know, like Tulsi Gabbard, who left the DNC. She's openly against this. Um, you, you do have people from the left who who support ending this. So the way I look at it is we we have to be capable of, as individuals, tactically displacing political narratives and identities when they don't serve us. And when they're actually being weaponized in terms of fifth generation warfare, but we also need to be able to take those political narratives and, and identities and use them when they are correct, because to an extent, it is the left wing of politics that has been more over, overtly infiltrated and used for this communist warfare. And so we do have to recognize that 
we're not really dealing with the left wing of politics anymore. We're dealing with a, this kind of ideological subversion that has transformed the left into something that we all can look back and remember that the left was not always this extreme. Mm -hmm. This is a transformation that we all saw. And so there is some, um, there's something tactical to be said about <clears throat> finding politicians who are not part of this uniparty structure, um, because you can find, you know, right-wing people who are supporting this who are, or who are pretending that they're against certain things, but then when you actually go and look at what they're doing, they end up feeding into it. They end up expanding government powers and things like this. So we need to, rather than looking for the correct right-wing candidate, we need to find candidates that aren't within that uniparty that is driving all of this globalism, this new world order forward. And we do want to put them into office. So you do want to get involved locally to an extent to get people that are outside of this uniparty structure, um, but not to the expense of your own capacity to think freely outside of the political spectrum. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious, Simon, in your research, um, are you seeing these increases in, in children, teenagers that want to medically transition? Are you seeing them like across the board statistically, or is it specific to location demographics, i.e. more, let's say, left-wing states, et cetera? Mm. Um, it does seem to be more left-wing, uh, not even just states. The, the research shows that it is more left-wing families. There's a study that I cite in my film um, that uh, interviewed, I think it was a, 250 parents. And, um, you know, th this researcher, Lisa Littman, she interviewed these parents, uh, uh, and they were all parents of girls, adolescent girls who had newly come out as trans. And so she gathered uh, all the data from these parents from these sites that were essentially platforms that have been built for, for parents to speak out or to network about their experience with transgender children. And what they found uh, was that 80% of the families who were dealing with this were progressive, pro-LGBTQ, left-wing families. So it does seem to be predominantly impacting left-wing families, which makes sense in terms of what ideology makes it into the household. Um, not to say that there aren't right-wing people, but that does seem to dominate it. Um, so I think, that, again, the family unit and the extent to which the family unit is infiltrated by ideologies, you know, this is an important thing to recognize. Uh, what does it mean to form a family unit that can withstand some of those out, outside influences? And, and how do you form a family that is coherent enough to travel through these modern times without uh, that kind of influence? Uh, so I would say that, that that seems to be the case in terms of that data. That's something that comes up in uh, the book Irreversible Damage by Abigail Schreier. She looks at how most of this is progressive families. So, you know, that does speak to, to again, like I said, the left wing being infiltrated by these these communist operations. What What is the ideal family unit? <clears throat> well, the way that I wanted to look at the ideal of the family was based on this traditional notion of, of the man, the woman, and the child, only because I wanted to see what was there in terms of the science uh, and, and the psychology. And <clears throat> I, I wanted to look at ideals more as a compass, because I think there's this, this strange notion in our society that, um, and I think a lot of social justice uh, ideology ha has been uh, responsible for this, instead of seeing ideals as a compass that just guides us in a non-judgmental way, it's like a collective focus to give us direction, as opposed to a system of judgment 
that excludes and shames people that fall outside of that ideal. Um, my understanding of ideals has been very much as a compass. And when I looked into what uniquely happens when a man and a woman have a child, what is really going on there? And why is this ideal? I found some really, really beautiful science, like what I call the science of devotion. <clears throat> so for example, when a man is present with the woman that he is impregnated and devoted, so when I say devoted, I mean he is physically present to the extent that his body is impacted by her body. A pregnant woman has a kind of biofield she emits. And if a man is devoted to that woman and present enough, her body actually starts to physically reprogram the man's body and alters his chemical makeup. One of the studies they've done here is uh, to show that men who are present with their pregnant partners like this, uh, they have a rise in what's called prolactin. And they found this incredible, these incredible revelations in their research that men who had this rise in prolactin caused by the pregnant woman's body changed the man's body so that once his child was born, his body was more receptive to his child's cries. And so literally, the relationship between the father and the child is being formed by the mother's body so that after the child is born, they have a deeper connection. And the men in these studies, they had no idea that their bodies were being changed this deeply. They were unaware of it, and it was shown to them after. And another one of the studies that, that, um, that I looked into was uh, what happens to a man when he holds his newborn child for the first time. And what they found was that the man's testosterone temporarily dropped by 33% and changed the emotional landscape of that man to create a moment of deeper bonding between him and his child. So we have this, these actual scientific discoveries that show that there's a unique series of cascading events that occur when a man and a woman create a child together. Um, and one of the other things I found was that women who are pregnant with child the actual DNA, the cells of that child, that developing child, they cross the placental wall. They go throughout the woman's body into the woman's tissues, into her organ tissues. And what they found was that uh, there was a study on women having uh, heart attacks and uh, like heart problems, pregnant women. And they, they found this crazy statistic that 50% uh, of these women were completely healing. Their hearts were completely healing in something like two weeks and they couldn't figure it out. And when they looked deeper, they found that it was the cells of their child that had actually gone to the woman's heart and repaired her heart within a two-week time span. And so there is also the child's body is devoted to protecting the mother's body as it develops. So there is beautiful, beautiful science on family devotion, on the devotion that is built into the family unit. And so to me, those are unique events that really do only occur when it's a man and a woman. And so that is not to exclude other forms of family. It's only to recognize what is here and to try to uplift ideals that guide us as a civilization without being judgmental and exclusive to, to others who are exploring different forms of family. I love your passion, man. Yeah, it's very exciting to me. I mean, this is, I, I got into this because I, you know, I had a child on the way yeah. and uh, I wanted to look into the science of fatherhood because I I was so used to the, the, the media saying fathers are all buffoons and they don't know what they're doing. And like, you know, they're just like dummies who can't handle children. This is constantly in our media. Uh, that was when I was studying the, the, the warfare on fathers. That was what I came across. And so I, 
that was the focus of my docuseries Superorganism. It was like, what, what exists? What do we already know that kind of looks at the family as a superorganism? So to me, that's a very interesting way to push back against this, this warfare because here in Canada, in the schools, gender ideology has infiltrated to the extent that the new curricula that's in schools, that has been in schools for some time in Canada, is asking teachers not to use the term mother and father anymore. They're removing those words from the classroom based on this idea that it's exclusionary and harmful or detrimental to children who don't come from that style of family. And so you actually have the removal of the concept of the mother and father. What happens when a generation is raised uh, eight hours a day, five days a week in spaces where the father and the mother don't exist as concepts? You know, we're looking at something very damaging. So that's why my pushback is to say, hey, wait a minute, what do we already know about how beautiful this ideal is? And let's just look at it from a point of beauty. Yeah. Yeah. Can, can we can we dive down that a little bit deeper? What did you discover in terms of, you know, the key factors in the war against fatherhood? And I mean, how any fathers that might be listening can, you know, begin to step deeper into, you know, what's organic? I think the, the, the relevance of fathers, the the deep bond that fathers play and the role they actually have is very important. Um, you know, a lot of even the science leaned more towards just the mother being the primary connection and the father not really being that relevant. I think <clears throat> there were cultural ideals that they looked at the father as, as this provider. And I think that that is correct. The provider protector archetype that can be useful, but in a modern sense that got taken to an extreme where a lot of fathers used it to justify being absent and just, I have to work for my family. I have to work nonstop to provide. And in doing that, you know, you actually might miss the mother's body reprogramming your body. So trying to uh, find that actual devotion, this is an opportunity for something automatic to occur. I mean, it's really kind of cool because you don't have to, like you're present with it, but it's just, it's just going to change your body. It's going to change you. And then you get those evolutionary benefits as a father. Um, there was a book, uh, that I, where, where I found the majority of this data is called, uh, why fathers matter. And this, this whole book is based on this. It's based on looking at the history of families throughout the world and all the science on fatherhood and, and really trying to uplift this idea that, that the father is highly relevant in a, in a biological and in a, a psychological and in a cultural sense. So, you know, when we look at the warfare on the family and this, this father as a buffoon who doesn't know what he's doing, uh, that's very harmful to men's self-esteem. I think that can really downgrade a man's sense of his relevance and his purpose within the family. Um, I think we also have the war on masculinity itself, this idea that masculinity is toxic. Um, you even have, I think it was James Cameron who recently tried to say that testosterone itself is toxic and it should be weeded out of men that men should try to reduce their testosterone. Um, so th this whole notion, it does come back to a lot of this, this social justice uh, ideology, the idea that we're surrounded by an unending white male patriarchy. You have examples of schools actually teaching young white boys that they are inherently violent in who they are and that they, they should feel guilt for who they are. Um, so, you know, this, this idea of the patriarchy has been very damaging because I think there's little truths in all of this. And that's where it gets really murky. Because like I said, there is truth to a lot of the, the feminist push to, to end the war on women, which is still ongoing. 
And there was, because feminism got infiltrated and became about hating men, there was then a pushback from the masculine side that I think was detrimental for men and women. So you get into these muddy sort of chaotic waters when I think we need to, we need to be relying to me more on ideals and archetypes, like this archetype of the philosopher king, I think is very beautiful. You know, a king who's able to go and, and lead his army, uh, but he's also able to soften and become the philosopher and guide people spiritually and finding that sort of balance between the yin and the yang of being masculine. You know, I think fathers should recognize that while it is important right now for men to stand up and be protectors, because that is a big element that I think is missing right now. There does need to be like an army of dads standing up. I'm literally helping... I have a group called Dad Army that I'm creating in tandem with Mom Army right now. And it's very much about this, calling men to stand up, to be protectors, to defend women and children. At the same time, men need to know how to soften, how to be with their innocence and with the innocence of their children. Because if you're all warfare, um, you're going to miss that too. And so to me, that's an important element of this. And, and we don't want to go too far in the other direction so that we miss that because a traumatized man is unable to be with the innocence of, of children if he can't be with the innocence of himself. Well said, man. I'm really enjoying this interview. I just appreciate you so much and, and just the work that you're doing and how you communicate. It's um, it's so important, man. And I, I'm so excited for your, your film to come out on two days from this recording, but this episode will be released a little bit later. And I, I hope as many people watch it. Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking, speaking, speaking of that, I'm curious, like what inspired you even just creatively and aesthetically, like your documentary is very different than let's say, what is a woman or other styles of documentary. And it's, it's the way you edit it, the way um, it's done is really cool. Yeah. I mean, I've like, I, I come from a theater maker background. Um, I, I trained in university, what was called, uh, it was like a collective creation stream of theater making. And it was all about getting into small collectives and, and making theater pieces. And, you know, I ended up becoming very, very aesthetically passionate, I guess. I, I felt like being able to work with light and color and aesthetics and sound in a way that was emotionally evocative uh, was a very authentic way for me to communicate. Um, you know, I, I rely on my emotional intelligence. I rely on, on, on my emotions as a sense of authority. Um, not, not in terms of like when I am very emotional, then I act on it. It's more like if I observe an emotional wave and I wait for that wave to come to an end, there are, there are moments of clarity. And so evoking these emotional waves, um, and then at the moment of the wave subsiding, using that moment of clarity to bring people to, to a moment of realization, um, is one of the ways that I've learned to communicate as an artist. and. As, as, a, as a filmmaker, I was really intrigued by this format of just having something that was entirely visual and just taking myself off camera because I just finished this docuseries where I was on camera a lot and you know that was okay, but I was very intrigued by that artistic challenge. What would it be like for me to just narrate this whole film and make everything not me on camera and everything as visually engaging and as emotionally evocative as I can while combining it with the, the best data and research that, that I had found that was the most compelling. Uh, so for me, you know, I didn't come at this from the angle of being like a documentarian. That's really not how I see myself. It was more like 
you know, I'm a very, I'm a very right, right-brained artist. Uh, and that, that was the correct way for me to, to bring this forward. And I, I felt like if, if I could bring people to that experience, then again, maybe I could create dialogue that, that was less political and that was more about communicating. What is it like? What is it like for girls to just try, try to be girls, try to be women? I mean, it's like, it's, it's upsetting to, to even think about, you know, after having made this film, I was like, God, what a nightmare to just try to become a woman. Uh, it's so intense. So I was really hoping to let that land with people so that they had a takeaway that changed them so that they would be part of making this change. Yeah. Yeah. Your opening montage is really powerful as well. And I wanted to actually highlight that what you, what you brought up is just the, the integrated right left brain nature of the movie as well, as opposed to like, oh, here's some information and maybe some footage of people, the way you utilize imagery, the way you utilize sound and, um, and symbols, I thought was really powerful. Yeah, something that came later in the process was this, this image of the butterfly, and of just of the, the woman made of butterflies. Uh, you know, for me, it's like, there's something there's something very intriguing about parsing out the difference between our history as humans exploring and expressing beauty. So, you know, on the one hand, women have always modified their bodies to express beauty. Like that part's not new, right? We can look back through history, there's piercings, there's tattoos. You know, most people have seen the images of like the the woman with the elongated neck with the mm. rings. So it's not like makeup, even yeah, makeup. Exactly. Like that, that is normal. And that, that is a normal part of human history. And I think where we lost the plot was, was in not understanding the difference between those older versions of that, which were actual genuine collective creations. Like if you look at it just from the lens of a tribe, like that tribe, they collectively created these rituals to explore and express beauty. And, and, and the women ex explored this to express beauty to the men. And, you know, that was something they made as a collective creation. Whereas now, in our current social structure, it's a centralized system of production where you have a handful of people creating these rituals and these forms of expression. And, and they're able to insert an agenda into those rituals. And then they're able to pump it into our society at large. And so it's no longer a collective creation. It's this consumer culture model, which has taken that old instinct and that tendency for humans and for women specifically to explore body modification as expressions of beauty and manipulated it very deeply. And so to me, it's very important to recognize the difference. And I think that's what sort of landed for me in, in, in evoking these images of like a woman made of butterflies and this idea of the butterfly transforming. And, you know, there's the little monologue that I took from a, from a show called Legion, where he talks about the man who was dreaming that he was a butterfly for so long that when he woke up, he wasn't sure if he was the butterfly or if the butterfly was having a dream that he was this man. There's that's, something that's to be said about our culture. What's that? That's that's Shuang Zhu. Um, that's Shuang Zhu. That's right. Yes. Yes. And to me, that's very much what's going on. Like the girls, they're so absorbed in, in what's being pumped into them from the centralized system of production that they become it. And they, they, they don't know what is them and what is this centralized system of cultural production that's being pumped into their being and messing with their ability to form an identity. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting that you named you know, this film to some degree, the subtitle Daughters of the West, um, because I've been in, living in Latin America now for three months, not a, not a long period of time. And I don't know to what degree people would classify this as the West. 
but this doesn't seem to be an issue here. You know, girls mm. and women, they're their girls and women. They know they're girls and women. They're not trying to be anything else. They're very, very comfortable in their natural archetypes, their natural expressions. Um, and it just doesn't seem, this warfare isn't taking place here from what I can observe, you know? There is and it's some... like we can get so trapped in the bubble of the Western ideology. Yes, yes. I mean, that's that's part of the information warfare, right? This information yeah. bubble that they keep us in. Yeah. There's there's some documents that I explored in uh, in my docuseries Superorganism called the Toronto Protocols. And these are uh, these are documents that were given to a journalist named Sergei Manas, and uh, you know he ended up being more popular in sort of conspiracy circles as the journalist who leaked what was called uh, Project Bluebeam. Uh, but before that, he he was allegedly handed these documents by a French intelligence agent, and the Toronto Protocols are records of um, what is allegedly two meetings that occurred in Toronto in the '60s and in the '80s. And this is a group that calls themselves the 666. And they are outlining their warfare strategy very, very specifically in terms of how they plan to install the new world order and what they need to do to the Western world to achieve that. And they, they outline it. It's, it's really actually quite incredible to read it. Um, it doesn't name any names. It really just is just their warfare strategy in these documents. But they, they talk about their strategy as, uh, what is the terminology they use? The genocide of the vital for the benefit of the occult. And that's the way that they look at it. And they are specifically citing that they are going to bring what they call a red wave. The, actually, one of the meetings, it's two meetings in these documents. One of the meetings is actually called the red wave. And they called it this in reference to the wave of communism they planned on basically bringing into the Western world specifically. And they say, in essence, that they will not be able to install a new world order unless they are able to successfully remove the family unit. So it seems like, you know, communism is a tool for the installation of this new world order and that the fall of the Western world to that warfare is crucial in these operations, which is why, you know, you can look at other countries that aren't being saturated by this because it just doesn't serve that warfare strategy you would see yeah yeah um and at the root of communism is collectivism right and uh, throughout history the the previous push for collectivism and communism was you know we're all one we're all together you know um uh, there is no individual thought there is no individual expression we're all just the same but now that's kind of evolved but the, the the purpose of it still is the destruction of identity, but it's no longer through the means overtly of, oh, we're all one group, one tribe. Now it's like, we're all nothing. We're all nobody. How can you possibly know who you are? There is no real ground to stand on to say that I am an, I am an individual. It's still the destruction of the individual, but the warfare and the tactic strategy has changed. Yes, absolutely. You know, it's, it's interesting. I, uh, I wrote another film called Vague Rules. And actually, people who purchase or rent cut, uh, one of the bonus features that I've added for people is to be able to screen my other film, Vague Rules. It's a 40-minute film that I wrote and that was edited by Adam Riva, who runs mm. a platform called yeah. Dauntless Dialogue. He's, he's coming, coming on May. He's coming on the beginning of May. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Adam's a good friend. Oh, he's yeah. great. Oh, that's good. So yeah, so Adam edited uh, Vague Rules. Um, and... It really looks into this, into the tactic of using vague rules and laws 
as a communist warfare tactic that creates very specific psychological conditions that direct human behavior in a very unique way. And so when we look at this thing of, 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 of making identity really vague, everything's really vague, like no one can find really any objectivity. Um, so gender ideology does that very well. Um, but, but critical race theory even does as well. And in Vague Rules, actually, what it did was, um, it, it's a film that looks at the use of this specific communist warfare tactic in the implementation of critical race theory, gender ideology, and the COVID response. And sort of how that warfare tactic is woven through all three of those events in the Western world, and how it can be tied to the history of communist China. Because uh, essentially, what happened in communist China was that um, <laughs> who who the enemy was was left intentionally vague. So Mao Zedong didn't really give people a good definition. He just said uh, revolutionaries. Generally speaking, you've got to stop the revolutionaries. So if you have revolutionaries, um, they need to be executed. And so uh, what he did was initially create this very broad term. And in the structure of power. What happens is that when humans aren't given clear definitions and clear rules and clear laws, there's a bit of a struggle to, to ascend the hierarchy. And you get this response in people where they want to be the most extreme. They want to take that rule to its extreme because there are no clear boundaries. They figure the only way to, to be the best is to perform the most extreme version of that. And this is what we found in the history of communist China. Um, initially. The, uh, the people that were working for Mao, his army, they had to get permission to execute people. So they would have to capture people and then the, the papers would have to go up to Mao Zedong and then he'd have to say, okay, I will prove the killing of 500 of these people. And then it would trickle down and they would get it. And over time, what ended up happening was that they started begging Mao Zedong for permission to kill indiscriminately without having to go up the ladder and to just be able to do it themselves. This initially happened on a provincial level, but that actually ended up even trickling down to, to the level of townships so that eventually he was like, okay, fine, you have my permission. You can just kill whoever you believe the revolutionaries to be. And so you see this, this extreme form of human behavior when we're exposed to these kinds of conditions. Uh, you know, they just, they just killed so many people. And it was very similar. It's been very similar with the implementation of these other ideologies in the West. COVID was a good example of that, where the, the rules for what to do and what not to do were very vague and confusing. And so the response was you had a lot of people who became extremists who were wearing suits and triple masks and were very anxiously trying to be the ones to take the vague rules and the vague laws the furthest, because that's actually a normal human response to those conditions. Oh, interesting. Hmm. Hmm. Well, we've got like 10 minutes left, man. I'm curious, what's next for you? So um, I do have some material to make a sequel to Cut. I have uh, at least one interview in the bag and uh, a couple of others lined up because there's some places I want to go a bit further with this. I think having left, having brought people to the point of of being open to this being warfare, I think I'd like to take that a little bit further um, in a sequel. And then... You know, something else that I'm working on is that I really want to, or I'm working on, I should say, a, a script for a film that is going to use knowledge of fifth generation warfare to look more deeply at the normalization of pedophilia and uh, the way that 
even discussion about that has been very, very, very tightly managed, very carefully controlled. And, you know, that's a really good example of the, the majority being gaslit into, into believing they're the minority. You know, this, this, this push of normalizing pedophilia, gender ideology has been a part of that, of trying to rename things uh, so that you know, pedophiles are called minor attracted persons. I'm really passionate about making a film that, again, is going to have a broad appeal that is going to be accessible to to more than just maybe people on the right who already agree with me. Um, and, and part of that comes with educating people about warfare and building a very strong foundation of, okay, here are these forms of warfare. Now, why does this look so much like these known forms of warfare? And and to really present those things clearly and, and put them up against each other and to not I don't want to lead people to certainty. Um, I'm more about trying to to lead people into um, an embodied experience and then asking broader questions and allowing that to land for them. So, uh, you know, I've, uh, that might end up being a collaboration. I have some people who have reached out to collaborate with me on that project. I'm not sure if it's going to be independent or something that I, I do with some other people, but um, that's something else that, that I'm looking at doing. And uh and at some point, I'm going to be getting back into making more comedy content because I've gotten into a very serious chapter of my life right now. And I, I am going to be needing to go back in that direction. But uh, I'm not sure what that looks like yet. I'm working with an NFT label. I'm, I'm an artist on an NFT label on the XRP ledger. And I actually, uh, I, I released a, a cut Daughters of the West NFT series. And uh, so for the people who bought that NFT series, they got actually got an early screening of cut in the metaverse. And I'm looking at doing some comedy content in the NFT space and working with this NFT label. That, that might be the route that I end up doing that. So I'm going to be you know, working in that space more because I love the idea of removing banks and removing these middlemen and having like a direct connection to my audience where not only is the, the financial connection direct, where it's just from me to, or for them to me, but also to be able to create NFTs and to be able to create culture that actually my audience can make money with me and we can raise the value of things together and, and become a community that, that generates income together uh, around things that, that, that I've been able to put into the world. Interesting, man. Um, to close, if you can, because we haven't really gone there yet, but to whatever concise degree you can, what, in your opinion, is the primal solution to this? I think... From my work, like what has come up over the years, you know, when I look back over my body of work, there's really two main things. Uh, one is situational awareness. So that does really have to do with getting educated about the war that you're in. You cannot live in the middle of a war zone without knowing that it's a war zone. You can't properly function. So I do really encourage people to develop a situational awareness that takes that perspective, not from one of fear. In fact, I found the study of warfare to really refine my sense of purpose and service. Like it has made it crystal clear how I want to serve humanity and in what direction my energy needs to be focused. And so to me, it's actually been strangely inspiring to, to come into greater situational awareness in terms of the war that we're in. You know, that, that's something that I, I really encourage people to do. I think the other big thing for me is free thought, is really understanding what free thought is. Um, you know, the, the best definition I found of free thought is uh, you know, the capacity to use logic, reason, and empiricism uh, to to be able to formulate thoughts that are not tied to uh, tradition, dogma, and authority. 
And I think empiricism is a big thing within that because that has to do with your direct life experience. And, and we really need that in this information war where everything's on social media. You need to have a whole lot of what you're doing and your purpose. You need to be anchored in your actual real life experiences, the real human beings and relationships you have in your life. You have to get grounded in that because if you aren't grounded in empiricism, you actually don't have access to free thought. If if your whole construct is made up of information that comes through devices, um, your ability to think freely will be greatly diminished. Um, in, in terms of gender ideology, um, if people go to daughtersofthewestfilm.com, I actually created a resource section there that is a growing library of resources for people to navigate this for families that have been harmed or um, or are being harmed or who are concerned. Um, so that's access to therapists, to uh, legal entities, to um, literature for children that doesn't have gender ideology and that promotes love of the body that you're in. Uh, just a, a whole lot is there. And this is a lot of stuff that's being censored and you know that needs to be uplifted. So I've, I've done my best to build out there uh, some practical resources that can truly help families. Um, you know, one of the one of the resources on there is literally just a network of parents who are struggling with gender transitioned children. Um, so you know that that that's I think a practical thing that if people want to go and grab right away from my work, you could you could go do that right now. Amazing. Yeah, we'll man. definitely have. Yeah, yeah, we'll definitely have that in the show notes. Uh, that link to yeah. all those resources. Yeah. And if I could add one more to your list of solutions, is that this starts this starts in the home, right? This starts oh, with yeah. individual families, and this starts with individuals. Like at the end of the day, you know, the 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 the, the cultural flow is going to do what it's going to do. You know, the, the terrain is always going to change. But you know, if you can do the work to know yourself in the deepest levels, to be present, to be embodied, you know, to to, to be with your family, um, and to just raise 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 children with objectivity with free thought with embodiment um then that's that's where the gold is for sure absolutely we're an unschooling family um yeah. you know so we're very much about raising free thinking children and I, I think if you can homeschool or unschool your kids 100% do it um yeah. you know i know i know parents who are still finding ways to to augment their children's free thought and allow them to navigate the public system that happens to be in their area um, so that that does exist. I, I would say it depends on the child whether they're capable of doing that because different children are available to social engineering in different capacities. So know mm -hmm. your child very deeply. But yeah, if you can do that, absolutely. You know, for us, it's been a struggle. It's hard. It's a lot of work. But yeah, strengthen the family unit because, as I said, from the warfare do documents I've studied, they cannot install the new world order if there are strong families. So if you have the capacity to build a strong family that's able to travel through this, you are fighting the war. Yeah. Cyberman, I love your creativity. I love your passion. I love the way you articulate. Um, you know, you're, you're doing incredible work and it's coming really from blending um, creativity, intuition, reason, objective, objectivity. It really is a holistic approach um, to, 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 to creation and it's amazing to see and witness. Can you please direct their audience to where they can discover your work, your film and support you? Yes. So if you go to daughtersofthewestfilm.com, you can get access to the film. Um, there's a link on the trailer there that will take you to, um, to, be, to the site to be able to purchase or rent uh, the film. As I said, you'll get vague rules along with that. Um, to look at my larger body of work, you can go to www.simonessler.com. And that outlines my whole portfolio, um, a lot of which is on rise.tv. Some of it is on Dauntless Dialogue. 
and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep building that out. And uh, you know, there's ways to support me there outside of purchasing my film. There's ways to make donations and to follow my my own podcast, which uh, has been on a hiatus, but I'll be rebooting it soon. I have the Finding Free Thought podcast that you can connect to on SimonEsser.com as well. So yeah, check both those sites out. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the more people that 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 purchase this film and support my work, I guess the more films I can make. Uh, yeah. So if you like my work, let's do it. <laughs> I, I urge everyone uh, to buy this film. Uh, I watched it and it was incredible. And watch it and then send it to people that you know. And if there are friends of yours or family of yours that are open to this, um, send it to them. Because yeah. again, it's super, super important. And this dialogue needs to continue and it needs to be brought out into the open more. Absolutely. Guys, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Smoke and mirrors, I'm seeing through the illusion. Waking up in a time, they think you're in a delusion. Somebody set the alarms, cause they be too busy snoozing. I'm in a DeLorean. Fast forward an evolution to a place where we can share that confusion. Yeah, 450 BC, I'm sharing tea with confusion.